It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com which is spelled s-u-d-i-o sweden.com and simply put in the code d-t-d when purchasing a pair of headphones just before we get into this week's show i need to remind you that we are part of the agora podcast network it's a network of some 25 independently produced podcasts so why don't you go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and um, go and search out a brand new podcast for your podcasting ears. This month, our podcast of the month is Beyond the Big Screen by Stephen Guerra. So if you want to know the true stories behind your favourite movies, the real facts and the background are often much more interesting and complex than you might think. Um, Stephen interviews people who are incredibly passionate about a specific film or a genre. They are great interviews. So why don't you take a listen to Behind the Big Screen on a podcatcher of your choice. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown in San Francisco. Today I'm joined by Kunle Alalode from The Voice of Change in London to discuss why some ethnic minorities bucked the pollsters' predictions and were full-throated supporters of Brexit. Kunle, hello. How are you, mate? I'm fine. Hope things are pleasant where you are. It's freezing cold in London. 
Well, it's a little bit warmer over here, uh, but that's not to say, uh, and, that, and that also goes for the political temperature over here. Obviously, we're in the middle of uh, Trump's America, so to speak, and that kind of cultural revolution that mm-hmm. that's kind of causing over here. But over in my uh, in my homeland, um, there's somewhat of another kind of political uh, revolution going on, and that is called Brexit. Here, look, lovely backs, England flag, seven ninety five. God bless England. Referendum I voted, we must leave. The time is very hard now. I mean, the business is going down and all these foreigners coming, they're doing, working. But my children, they are educated, they can't get a job because all jobs foreigners is taking. Ethnicity played a crucial part in the final referendum result, with ethnic minorities generally more likely to back Remain. However, this was, wasn't completely uniform. In some parts of London, some Asian populations were more likely to vote Leave. Kunle, uh, you're black, middle class, and dare I say it, part of the liberal elite. Mm-hmm. You should have voted to Remain. Why didn't you? Well, I'm black, but I actually come from a working class background. I still live in the area that I grew up in. Uh, and I went to a state school and... Uh, Which is where? Just so everybody gets a full... Picture. In South London. In fact, I went to Ernest Beving College, as it's now known as, which incidentally is the same school that uh, Sadiq Khan, who is a family friend, went to. And also the school that David Davis, who's leading on the Brexit negotiations, went to. The vast majority of ethnic minority people in the UK politically vote left of centre. Would that be a fair Um, summation to make? I think that is a fair summation, although that's quite fluid. As you said, uh, it depends on which region you're looking at. Okay, but if you're going to paint with broad brush strokes, it's a fairly safe, you know, summation to make that whether you're of Pakistani, Indian, West Indian or African origin, generally you vote politically left of centre. So the calculus was before the referendum poll was that ethnic minorities would be solidly uh, for remain because again and this isn't exactly right but generally at least the way the argument was framed before the referendum result um, if you lent left of center you're more likely to vote remain if you're right of center you're more likely to leave and obviously there's a gray area in the middle uh, and obviously what the pollsters didn't quite understand was white working class resentment are you with me so far i'm with you but i think the analysis has some caveats to add so for example the okay. further north you would go you would probably find that you more um bme leave voters And even in the South, somewhere like London, 40% of the electorate still voted Leave. Many of those um, were from uh, ethnic minorities. Absolutely. And and that's what we want to try and dig into in our kind of conversation. But what I wanted to do, just do a rough, very rough kind of setup as to how the pollsters, how the political establishment kind of thought this thing was how the whole leave, remain argument was kind of set up, very much with conventional politics in mind. And in lots of ways, what the referendum has done is to upturn conventional British politics. And and, and a lot of the assumptions kind of around that. And I will will very clearly say, um, in, in kind of every way I play to that stereotype, I am um, middle class, middle aged, 
black British man um, from a major city. So I'm urban. I've been living in from Birmingham. I've been living in London for some 20 odd years. For me, being a student of history, but also somebody who sees themselves as not only a Brummie, but English as opposed to British, urban, European, there was no other vote other than to remain for me. What pushed you? Well, two things. I think one, I'm a pro-European and as well as being a a Londoner and a citizen of the country, I also have worked abroad in Spain, uh, primarily in the Catalonia region. I worked in performance arts in Barcelona for the best part of 24 odd years and I still have very strong connections with uh, that region. Uh, So I was able to see through um, the eyes of uh, both Spanish and Catalonian people um, the impact that the EU was having on them economically. Devastating impact in terms of linking into the euro um, and the way that that strangled um, the Spanish economy having to more or less peg itself to the euro and the devastation that caused in terms of unemployment. I I don't massively derail you, but I know if I don't uh, make kind of like uh, mental check marks, I will get points. We've never joined the euro, have we? No, they didn't. So we've never pegged our economy. So I understand that some Mediterranean countries whose economies maybe are not as robust as, let's say, Germany's or France, i.e. Greece, Portugal, Spain, they did join the euro and then that created lots of internal um, kind of upheaval. But we never did, did we? So so we never had that economic shock to deal with, unlike the Spanish. Actually, we still had the responsibility for bailing out the economies of both um, Spain, Greece and to a lesser extent Portugal. Mm -hmm. So it still had an impact on the British economy. Um, and certainly, for me, it was more a kind of, well, if this is the nature of European democracy, which is that the economies of those countries are strangled, then I need to look at this in more depth and understand not just the question of monetary uh, integration, but also what it means in relation to political integration. So if you can imagine a situation where you've got people during the crisis of um, the currency in Greece and the crisis of the economy. I'm working in Spain and I'm coming backwards and forwards between London and Barcelona. And then the next thing I'm getting phone calls from people asking me how they can transfer their money from Greece, from Spain to British banks to ensure that they don't get caught up in the kind of mess that's developing. So for me, that raised questions. Does further political integration into Europe, is that a progressive thing? I came to the conclusion that it wasn't. And though whilst I think the economic arrangements in terms of um, developing the common market was a positive thing, and I could see the benefits of that, the question of political integration, further political integration, is not one that I consider to be of benefit long term. And I was also mindful of the fact that as you kind of presented the Uh, scenarios at the beginning, the traditional actual um, position of the left and of um, the labor movement was actually a Eurosceptic one. I'm going back to uh, people like uh, Dennis Skinner, Tony Benn, uh, and indeed it was 
the labor movement that was the most critical kind of element uh, in looking at the formation of first initially the common market and uh, then the European Union after the Treaty of Maastricht. But uh, in the intervening years, I think as um, a bureaucracy, uh, particularly for many people in the establishment, the EU has become uh, much more of uh, an attractive proposition because the kind of, in my view, kind of democratic um, checks and balances that we have at national state level aren't actually in place at European level. So for me, when it came to the question of then voting, um, I was no doubt in my mind that um, we were better off out than in. So before the referendum was called by Cameron, would you put yourself down as somebody who believed in the European Union? Would that have been your position beforehand or were you a soft UKIPper? What exactly were you before you were forced to think about this intently and then cast your ballot? I would say that I'm firmly on the um, radical left. Um, I've spent 20 years of my life as both a trade union activist and as an organiser in the labour movement. I'm afraid I, the, the kind of casual stereotype um, of UKIPPER doesn't really work for me. And indeed, when it comes to the question of immigration, um, my views are quite liberal. And I'm, uh, I'm very pro-freedom of movement, which um, incidentally I also argued as a leader in favour of, which may contradict the way that you have presented the two sides of this argument. But one of the interesting things about Brexit, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, is that the left-right split, it doesn't actually work in the context of this particular political issue. No, no, no. Uh, Broadly, it doesn't. But um, that's with the benefit of kind of hindsight. And I think you are completely right to to remind me and the listeners that people who are anti the EU do have a very strong tradition on the left. Jeremy Corbyn, we all know, is no fervent believer in the European Union. And back in the 1970s, Tony Benn, Dennis Skinner, etc., were very much anti the EU, which was seen as a market-driven community. And they didn't believe that it would be have the best instincts of the working man. Yeah, I mean, they referred to it as a boss's club. And at its core, exactly. It was it was a boss's cabal, so to speak. However, what one of the things which the European Union has done is enshrine uh, workers' rights. There's various di- directives, etc. And generally, at least the the centre to the right of the Labour Party has become uh, a, a strong backer of uh, European Union in the intervening time. I think it's kind of quite interesting for me what you were saying specifically around immigration, because I believe that fundamentally the vote to leave was really one around immigration, specifically when you're looking at all that talk of, oh, my gosh, all these brown people, all these Muslims, all these Turks are going to be able to run rampage all over Europe. They're going to be uh, knocking on the doors of Britain. There was Boris Johnson talking about Obama's half-Kenyan ancestry, Nigel Farage and UKIP's breaking point poster. How comfortable were you that the some of the key um, advocates for leave were banging that racist, xenophobic drum? Um, I um, didn't see that as being uh, a problem that was insoluble. The issue of immigration has been a taken 
in my view, as a reactionary issue by both Leave and Remain uh, sides for probably the last 20, 30 years. So, for example, um, Theresa May, who um, was one of the leading proponents of the Remain side, was also the same person who, as Home Secretary, mobilized the white vans asking um, immigrants to leave the country. Uh, a shocking <laughs> episode, which I know that uh, many of the anti-racist organizations and individuals um, that I work with were completely appalled by. And yet she was at the you know, forefront of the Remain campaign. Similarly, David Cameron began to backtrack on the immigration issue and concede increasingly that it was a problem and that uh, what we needed to do was to reduce the numbers. And likewise, even Corbyn now has gone out on record and saying that the immigration issue needs to be looked at in a different way, even by a, a, a left of centre Labour Party. So I think what I was more perplexed by was the confusion. Um, I certainly think that immigration was an issue, but as various studies have indicated, it was not the only issue. And also the way that people understood the immigration issue they forgot that actually there were two dimensions to it, non-EU immigration and EU immigration. So, for example, the restaurateurs associations in Bradford, which came out in favour of the lead vote, came out because of the problems they are having getting uh, waiters and workers into the country because they know that there's a two-tier system of immigration that operates which favours EU citizens. So that's an aspect of this that you really actually saw in the debates on TV, on radio, because it didn't fit with the um, stereotype um, that was developed in terms of the two sides. So it's, a, it's actually a much more complex question when you drill down into it as to why people voted leave. But Kunle, how comfortable did you feel the fact that you yep. knew that many of those people who were fervent are just anti-immigration full stop. They made no, little or no distinction between a white Polish plumber and somebody from the, in, from the Indian subcontinent. As far as they're concerned, there was an element of immigration is um, undermining Britain as we understand it, and British values. So how comfortable were you lining up with people who you, knew, who you knew that really, when they were talking about immigration, they weren't making that distinction that you are or the, you know, the Indian Restauranters Association up in Bradford were. It's a case of you people are not British, you're not English. No, I don't think that they even saw it that way. 30% of um, BME people actually voted Leave. And if you were uh, going to the debates that I went to and talking to black people, you would see that the issue of access to the job market, the question of housing and resources were the things that people were talking about. And it's, you asked so, me, let me so finish. Was this really just let a me case of... answer your question. Um, how comfortable I was in the debates that I went to, I always made it clear on the question of immigration. I actually wanted um, and advocated an equalization in terms of the rights of non-EU um, migrants and EU migrants. And that's why also 
um, for me, you could not actually bring that about whilst remaining in the EU. So it, it was a it was a slam dunk as far as I was concerned. All right. So for you, there was an economic argument to do with uh, balance of transfer payments to Mediterranean economies that maybe couldn't really suffer the global downturn as well as the normal. But essentially, I'm talking countries. about sovereignty. Uh, and then, but I'm trying then, to talk about it in a way that's graphic rather okay, than just. Well, Assertive. Okay. Well, I'm I'm, try, I'm trying to pick pick through the the individual points, and then um, you have um, issues around immigration, of which you've carefully kind of explained and explored. You've now kind mm. of uh, somewhat preempted me that for some Brexiteers, let's say your your Reese Moggs, etc., this is a key issue around sovereignty. But today is in fact celebrating one of the days that will go down in the annals of British history. There are many years in British history that we can call to mind, be it 1066 or 1215, or how many do you want? (laughs) 1346, um, 1485, 1509, 1588, 1649. These are great and famous years. But it is very, very rare, it is very rare that specific days are commemorated as I think the 23rd of June 2016 will be commemorated. It is on a par with St Crispin's Day 1415 and with the 18th of June uh, 1815, great days in our nation's history. And we are here debating this because our constitution has been put back on a proper footing. It has been put back on a proper footing by the wisdom of the British people. What does sovereignty mean to you? Why is it that many people who are part of the ethnic minority communities throughout the UK don't have your concerns around sovereignty? You talked about paying money to proper countries doing hard times that's not actually what I was inferring what I was trying to get at is the fact that the economic position of those countries means that um, the EU and primarily um, Germany actually then takes control of those economies undermining the democracy and democratic rights of individuals within those countries and for me the question of sovereignty is uh, is really a central one because it is at the end of the day Um, The nation state is the basic structure, democratic structure that gives um, democracy its life. And um, the situation with the EU, um, I believe, as I said at the beginning, further political integration is not the way to go, because I believe that that only undermines local democracy, uh, but it also undermines it at the level of the nation state. If you look at the... Um, proposals coming from the Commission uh, in terms of the future developments of the EU is not around liberalisation. In fact, um, one of the conditions of future EU membership will be um, uh, it will be compulsory to join the uh, European monetary mechanism. Um, There will be um, proposals to develop a a European-wide army. There are proposals that, in effect, essentially undermine what I consider to be the basic unit of democracy, which is the nation state. So, um, again, um, that's one of the other things that I think we need to consider quite seriously in this debate. Um, didn't quite answer my question as the reason why you you 
probably found yourself out of step with other kind of ethnic minority uh, Brits. Um, Well, I mean, just in a nutshell, I would say as as it depends where you go. Um, In terms of many people in London who voted leave from ethnic minorities, voted and have kept it quiet. Um, And the reason being is that when politics becomes a cultural phenomenon rather than a political phenomenon, um, it's about association. So, for example, you've asked me several questions about the, uh, the far right and their inclination to vote leave. But actually, that is a, is a question which then denies me the right to be able to look at uh, something objectively, look at the facts of the matter and then come to a conclusion rather than just saying, well, I'm going to vote that way because these nasty people over here are voting that way. So I'm going to do the opposite. Politics is more complicated than that. But I think increasingly, and I think you have hit on something, it's becoming more tribal. And my view is you should always look at it, uh, any issue from the perspective of what's in the best interest of the uh, majority of people in society. If I'm trying to understand your position, um, it's a case of the European Union is not at all perfect but you were relatively happy you're relatively happy with the european union that we have now if we take the economics just slightly to one side for now what you seem to have voted against was yeah was I, to think, preempt. I, I thought it was a good idea yeah so with that in mind at best you're a soft brexiteer but actually you want the status quo you want the european union of 2016 you don't want it to expand its remit anymore you're quite happy for there to be freedom of movement between the 28 states you're quite happy for there to be for there to be a customs union a single market but you don't want any deeper immersion of the european states because you see the nation state as being the fundamental bulwark Uh, which um, entrenches the position of the citizen. I would go back further, actually. I think I'd say pre-1992, i.e. Maastricht Treaty. For me, that was really the turning point. I'm a pro-European, as I said. I actually have lived and worked in Europe. I have fantastic friendships and business relationships that I've built up in Europe over time. And the equation of... Being anti-Europe because you're a Leave voter is an unfair one. There are many um, Leave voters who actually are quite pro-European, but they are not um, pro-EU. So the, the equation of the two as a, uh, distorts, I think, um, a lot of um, uh, the discussion around it. Uh, I believe in the run-up to the actual referendum, uh, my organisation tried to get the BBC to agree um, not to um, equate uh, EU and Europe in the in the same sentence but to be specific when actually referring to those but they refused to do it and so of course in the minds of particularly many young people being pro-european meant being pro-eu and being anti-eu meant being anti-european when in fact it's not the same thing i had a bit of a blazing row with my mother and it's the only time that as as an adult I've had an argument with my mother, being a good, respectful West Indian boy. You uh, you respect your elders (laughs) and you just don't do that. I discovered a day or two after after that referendum result 
whilst having a casual conversation with my mother and I was bemoaning the idiots that voted to leave. And she says, well, I voted leave. And, and I was absolutely dumbfounded. So we had an argument, which, uh, let's say a conversation, which then became an argument, which went on the lines of my mother saying things like, there are too many poles in the country, <laughs> uh, which I just could not believe what I was hearing. And I had to remind her that some 50, 50 60 years uh, before, people would have been saying the same about her being Jamaican, too many Jamaicans in the country. She said, uh, they're using our National Health Service. And I said, no, mom, they're, they're, they're propping it up. I think you'll find. I think you'll find that new immigrants into the country are underrepresented in terms of social benefits uh, and the welfare state and using the NHS. Every survey and statistic tells you that. I, I just could not believe the arguments. But one thing my mother did say, which I think you you said at the very start, she said this, she said, the reason why I voted leave was also because there are no jobs in Birmingham for my kids, meaning my brother and myself, both of us, which had left Birmingham, me some 20, 30 years ago, to go to London and my brother much more recently. And, and I said, we are doing fine. But actually, when I sat down and, and the blood had stopped pumping through my veins and I, and I was a bit calmer afterwards and I, and I put the phone down, I realised that what my mother was really talking about was she was arguing against a level of globalisation yeah. or... No, I'm going to put globalisation to one side. Centralisation of the English state, whereby um, some 20... No, some 30-odd mm -hmm. percent of our GDP comes out of London and, and the South mm -hmm. East. All of our institutions are based in London, whether it's the BBC, which I know has a, a, a bit of it now in Salford, but let's say the BBC through to every economic powerful um, industry is centred in the South East and London. And really what she was voting against was that when my mother came to Birmingham in the early 1960s, the GDP of Birmingham yeah. was higher than London which is something which yeah. even when, when I say this, even though I know it to be fact, it, it, it feels untrue um, that England was a much more balanced country economically until right. yeah. uh, the late 70s and the early 80s and de financial deregulation. Isn't that really what a lot of this vote for leave was about outside of, outside of London? And you're right. Some 40-odd percent of people in London still voted to leave. But if you, if, you, um, if you don't look at the statistics and you look at the narrative which had been painted since that referendum, you'd think London was 100% remain. All the cities, with the exception of Birmingham, were maybe like 80% remain. And then everywhere else was, was solidly pro-leave. And, and, it, and it's much more complex than that. But I think at the heart of it, isn't that really, I think my mother put a finger on it, people were voting against the current status quo. And because it wasn't a party political vote, many more people could thumb, you know, stick their finger up to yeah. the system. Yeah. To, and, and that's really why we've ended up where we are. Well, that's I said at the beginning that it's more complex than just simply um, looking at the immigration issue. And indeed, many of those areas outside of London 
that were the most pronounced um, leave areas actually had very few migrants, interestingly enough. You can read mm-hmm. the um, study done by, uh, I think it's Huddersfield University on this, which is really interesting. Uh, and I do think there was an element of people saying, yeah, we're going to sh- we'll stick two fingers up at that lot who have been talking and talking for years but n- never done anything for us. And I do think uh, it's not a phenomenon that's specific to the UK, but I think this is something that we've seen in America and even in other parts of Europe, in France, and even uh, you know, Angela Merkel herself is um, suffering from what you could term the end of the old order in terms of established political parties uh, finding it difficult to guarantee the constituencies that they previously uh, relied on. So, for example, even Corbyn um, and Momentum is, uh, is part of that shift. Um, and I was saying to people before the general election in England, um, as everybody was um, throwing heaps of dung on Corbyn's head, I said he's going to do much better than people think, and he's going to shock people. And sure enough, um, Theresa May very overconfidently went to an election and found herself um, having her majority reduced. And I think we are going through a period politically which is very fluid, in which um, the parties, the outsider parties, can disrupt um, the established order. Um, and as I said, um, I think you're, you're, you're actually spot on. And the referendum was an opportunity. It was a very simple question. You're either for or against, in or out. People weren't voting, given the option of, uh, well, I'm a, a leaver, but I really want reform. That wasn't on the ballot uh, sheet. And so a lot of resentment and I think anger was also bound up in that um, uh, referendum result. And that's continued, I think. Uh, And we can see that even in France, politically, things have become much more volatile. Um, Pollsters and political scientists are scratching their heads because they can no longer anticipate and predict with any degree of certainty what the outcome is going to be around any political um, election. All right, before we... uh maybe investigate France and, and uh, Germany under Merkel. Uh, you talked about outsider political parties. Um, mm-hmm. Before we, we went on mic, you said that you're in a minority of one in your wider family. So you're somewhat of a, an outsider. Uh, can you give us um, a flavour as to some of the conversations that maybe you had with family members um... about the reason why you voted the way that you did? I think that uh, the discussion was, well, went along the lines of, well, I don't want to be associated with people like UKIP or the far right. And I said, well, politics isn't just about, you know, um, culture. It's about looking at the arguments and coming to a conclusion. Um, But even, you know, uh, organisations like Operation Black Vote, who had... um, they also ran a poster campaign, uh, one of uh, an Asian woman on one side of a seesaw and on the other side, um, a guy who looked like a skinhead from a far right group. And so very much in terms of the uh, way that the debate uh, in the run up to the referendum was polarized was between those two extremes or either if you vote, the suggestion being that if you voted leave, you were some kind of right wing backwardsman. And if you um voted remain 
you are a, a left-leaning um, liberal type who was okay. Of course, for people like um, Dennis Skinner and uh, other uh, left-leaners who had been critics of the EU, um, so for example, the uh, RMT trade union um, supported the leave position, as did the fire brigade. You never heard their voices in any of this. Um, so that polarization was a false one, which is why many of the pollsters were then were shocked by the leave vote. Interestingly enough, I don't believe, for example, even the key figures in the leave campaign, like Boris Johnson, actually thought that the vote was going to be won. Um, I think that you know many of them assumed that they'd wake up the next day and everything would be as it was. But you know, the great uh, British electorate decided otherwise. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'd like to ask Miss Diane Abbott, you say that you respect the will of the people... But do you have any remorse or any apology to make for the disgusting lie you made against me and millions of innocent people who voted Leave, where you said that because they voted Leave, they don't like the look of foreign people, they must be racist or xenophobe? I voted to leave the European Union. That was on the ballot paper. It was not because of the colour of somebody's skin or their ethnicity or where they come from. It was to leave the European Union and you have so much distress and hurt to me. All right, it's a disgrace. Do you know, one of the people I most admire in politics was Tony Benn. And if he was alive today, he would have voted to come out of the EU. So I would never say that people voted to come out because they were racist. But there is no question that in the month... No, the month after the Brexit vote, we had a 41% rise in race hate. We saw that terrible killing of the Kurdish boy in Croydon. I'm not saying that there weren't good reasons to come out to vote to the EU. But let's be clear about the rise in hate crimes that yeah, we've seen since. Diana, very irresponsible of you to stir up 
this unfounded su suggestion that people who voted to leave the European Union are somehow racist and that the killing, the awful so killing in Croydon was motivated by Brexit. There is no proof so whatsoever of that. And I think it's irresponsible so and disrespectful. Listening to me, I would never say that people like Tony Benn were racist, but I, and it's not me saying there was a 41% rise in hate crime, it was the Metropolitan Police. Do yes, you think they're stirring up yeah. um, hatred? You said that, um, I forget exactly, mm -hmm. exactly the words, so I was following what you were saying, but the, the point you're trying to make is that it wasn't as simple as yeah. the, uh, the Asian woman on the seesaw with, with the skinhead, uh, the, you know. But racist abuse, racist attacks, uh, racist vitriol language has increased. No one is denying that it hasn't since that vote on June 23rd in 2016. So that was definitely part of the calculus for some people, wasn't it? Um, I think you have to get a, a, a clear perspective on this. Certainly in the aftermath of the election result, um, some of the kind of backwards men um, uh, were felt a bit emboldened by some of the nationalist rhetoric and said some pretty stupid and did some pretty stupid things. But let's not forget, only um, a, a few months before that, um, London elected its first Muslim mayor. So, you know, I work around um, anti-racist campaigns all the time. And the idea that society in general has become more racist is not one that uh, it's not a view that I share. In fact, if anything, I think things are getting better. But the issue of um, a race, certainly, I mean, I've done so many interviews um, in the last three days alone. Everything from looking at the comments of the UKIP leader's girlfriend to the um, hoodie uh, issue uh, in South Africa and in America around H&M. The, certainly with the, with the marks coming from the American president um, in relation to African countries, I, I'm not surprised that anybody would probably be getting the impression that, by God, we're in some kind of um, racist um, storm at the moment. But I think generally, if I'm looking at the UK, race relations over the last 30 years, without a doubt, have improved. But I think um, there are still some issues that still need to be resolved. Where there haven't been improvements in particular is around the um, employment uh, and job market. But we don't talk about those things so much. Um, I think it's a difficult time for people who actually want to be optimistic. I think if you were looking at, as I say, even just the last two weeks. Is it? Because I've been, but I read constantly, I hear constantly that uh, leavers are calling us Remainers, Remoners, and saying that the future is the future is absolutely bright and it is optimistic. Um, I, interestingly enough, I mean, going back to the issue of race, one of the great things about Brexit was that it reinvigorated politics and straight after the um, vote, membership and recruitment of political parties actually increased. So the Labour Party membership went up, Tory Party membership went up, Lib Dem membership went up. The one party where membership actually declined was UKIP. So if society is becoming more racist, surely that situation should have been reversed. It, you would have seen those other parties' membership going into decline and UKIP's membership ex exploding. It didn't happen. 
But surely UKIP's raison d'etre was to get us out of the European Union. If we hold a referendum which says we're getting out of the European Union, then the political establishment says we're getting out of the European Union. There is no role for UKIP. UKIP has then rolled back into maybe two-thirds the Tory party, one-third the Labour party. Well, um, if you think just winning the vote around the referendum was uh, going to get us out, um, uh, that's a very naive view. I mean, I mean, I remember the day after the um, result came out, people were coming into my office congratulating me. I looked at them in the eye and said, well, congratulations about what? Nothing's happened yet. You know, and my view at that time was, if you think that the establishment are going to allow this um, removal from the EU to happen smoothly, you've got another thing coming. Uh, and I was actually more fearful that the actual vote will be overturned. And I'm, and I'm still, that's still my view. Kunli Oloyode, thank you for coming on to uh, Mid-Atlantic <laughs> uh, to have uh, an honest and impassioned discussion about Brexit and where... Um, thank you. Now it's, it's been a nice chatting, chatting to you, mate. And even though you're wrong... Right, I think it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, fifty-two percent of the votes say I'm right. Here's the thing, Conley. If that vote was run again tomorrow, how do you think the what do you think the result would be? I think the Leaves vote would actually um, be larger. When I did a debate at um, Europa House with all the um, organisations, the pro-European organisations, and I said that the result was going to be um, 55% to 45% leave, people gasped in the audience. They, they did not believe it. I was only out by 2%. Um, and that, what that indicates is how out of touch many political organisations are with actually how disgruntled people are in the in the wider country but i think we've both agreed though that what they're disgruntled about are things which are not specifically to do with the european union there, there is an issue around immigration and you know and i know that tony blair took a decision in the early 2000s to open up the uk to eastern european immigration before the other major western european countries did so mm-hmm. there is a lever uh, within the mechanism of, of open borders to still restrict immigration from EU countries. We just chose not to use it, number one. Number two, that the immigration debate, for some older Brits anyway, it's semantics, whether it's Eastern European immigration or whether it's ex-Commonwealth countries and, and immigration. The one thing which I was always, always noted in London, no one ever called an American an immigrant. There always were an expat. Mm-hmm. So there are uh, lines of cultural difference. No Indian person of Indian extraction working in London or in Britain is ever an expat. There was an immigrant yep. or their second or third generation. Yep. So there's that. Then what a lot of people let's say, in Sunderland, in Hull, in Immingham, those types of places which have been blighted by the post-industrial British uh, economy, really what they were um, voting against was extra perceived marginalisation, whether it was cultural, whether it was immigration, but really it was economic. So 
really the the issue of voting for Brexit, as you, as you, as you rightly said at the start, was a very complex one. But really, people were not voting against the European Union. What they were voting against was post-industrial Britain and the way that economically it's disadvantaged every other region of England other than the South East and London. But I think that there is also an issue of a democratic deficit, which we probably haven't touched on in the discussion in relation to both the EU and I would say um, uh, Britain. Um, so, for example, the question of... But, but isn't that a bit of a straw man? Though? No, not at all. Uh, not, not at all. I mean, I did a debate uh, give, in give, give Give me three examples whereby the, the will of British... Of, the British people represented and shown through Parliament has been thwarted by the EU. Being thwarted by the EU. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one, the question of um, having control over your borders. So that's the first thing. So if we wanted to bring in, if we wanted but to bring in Punjabi builders tomorrow, you would have to go, uh, do it under EU regulation. So that's one. You wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. So number two... Are you telling me that Jacob Rees-Mogg would rather we had Punjabi builders or plumbers um, as as opposed to any I, other? I can't, right I can't speak for uh, really Rees-Mogg. I can only speak in general terms on this, but that is a, a fact, and the EU regulates immigration. What I've been saying, trying to, uh, I suppose, get people to understand is that... Um, an immigration policy which is controlled by a nation state is inherently going to be more progressive than being dictated to by a, a quasi union. And that's unfortunately the situation we're in. So that's that's an example. The, the question of how we actually trade and in terms of uh, trying to establish a, a better trade agreements with Africa, India and places of new growth, places where there are relations that people are wanting to establish is also regulated through the EU, which is why the, the issue of the um, single market and the customs union has being um, discussed so vociferously at the moment. But absolutely. But before that referendum, with the exception of Nigel Farage, and he was really clear, he said, we want to be having trade agreements with, and then, he, then he'd reel off the countries of the old white Commonwealth and then lump America in. No serious British economist or politician was saying actually what you've said. Nobody was saying, goodness me, there's a whole load of plumbers, in, uh, a whole load of builders in Bangladesh and, and we can't get them in. And this is actually what we need for the, for the British economy. So I, I'd say that actually what you're saying is no, somewhat... I'm using academic, that as an example. It's not academic. It's a very practical problem. Okay, all right. Let, let's say that it's a practical example. But, the, but you know, the uh, the British uh, Construction Builders Association no, they're not, are not crying out for Bangladeshi house, builders. Then, then you need you know, they weren't because you can't get those skills before. anywhere else, but you can't get those workers into the country either. So what happens is they get brought in as illegals and they are ruthlessly and badly exploited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep right. you. <laughs> Couldn't I? I tried to wrap this show up. Just as it was getting, just as it was getting warmed up. One thing we haven't talked about, though you, you've, you've hinted at this, 
is, you know, you said that the day, uh, the day after on June 24th, uh, your staff said, congratulations, you got what you what you wanted. It's uh, and I'm sure they then went on to say it's hell and damnation. We're all going to we're going to fry uh, any second now. And it has to be said that the the worst predictions of the remainers in terms of the British economy have not come to pass. The pound's been devalued by 15%. Me being over here in San Francisco, I absolutely felt that immediately. But, you know, the country hasn't spun out of control economically, but it has spun out of control politically. You know, we are living through, dare I say it, uh, banana republic politics. We don't know from one day to the next what, what is happening. Um, Surely that alone tells you that something rather extraordinary has happened in British politics. Yep, I agree. Um, I think you're actually being very kind. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think political atmosphere at the moment is very fluid, incredibly fluid. I, um, as part of my work at Voice for Change, recently joined um, Theresa May's Race Disparity Audit Group at Downing Street. And I remember having the first meeting back in uh, December and at the back of my mind was, okay, this is a great initiative from the government. The race disparity audit is basically the releasing of all the data from uh, public institutions around race, ethnicity and uh, regional uh, variations in terms of um, uh, 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 differences between, uh, I suppose, um, the uh, lifestyles of white people black people, every ethnicity is looked at. And so it's the largest publication of data relating to um, BME communities. And we went along to that meeting at Downing Street and I thought, my God, this is a great initiative, but is she going to last the week? And that was really what was at the back of my mind. I couldn't even think about the um, audit figures or the data. I was thinking, well, if she goes, all of this goes as well. So we may be sitting around this table for a very short period of time. And as you've seen and acknowledged, there's just been turmoil in virtually every single major political party, Uh, whether it's the Lib Dems and how they go forward with um, calling for a second referendum, whether it's Labour Party, which is opposed to the Leave position in terms of its um, uh, leading activists, but then its activists in the north are uh, pro-leavers. Corbyn has had to play a, a very clever game of being non-committal uh, on uh, on major questions. But um, you know, at some point, the Labour Party is going to have to agree um, a package of measures taking us out of the EU. I think there's more problems uh, ahead. But just to summarise, we have a a situation where the country has voted to leave the EU. But the truth of the matter is um, you have more MPs in both um, political parties, Labour and Tory, who are pro-Remain and are hostile to the leave action. Uh, And to extend that even further... Shouldn't we let Parliament be sovereign. That's what Rees-Mogg and those dyed-in-the-wool sovereigntists in terms of the Brexit debate always said. Parliament should be sovereign. Why don't we just let Parliament be sovereign? Well, I'm not, I'm not stopping Parliament from being sovereign. There's also an issue of uh, popular sovereignty as well. So um, if you're a, for example, but a but that's, member, but that's not what David Davis, 
and Nigel Farage ever argued for. Key, key, central, their crown jewels in their anti-EU argument was always that Parliament, which represented uh, the British people, should be sovereign on all matters to do with the British people. Um, Except the one that they decided they wanted the British people to make a decision on because it was such a big issue, which was that of either leaving or remaining in the EU. That was a decision that they took as MPs. Um, I have no problem with um, Parliament um, voting on the um, end package. But, yeah, but um, the idea of Parliament overturning the vote to leave you know, would actually precipitate a political crisis of major proportions. And indeed, I was about to go on to say previously, the Mm pro-Remain position in House of Lords is even more uh, uh, extenuated. I think it's over 600 peers in favour of remaining. So the passage of the bill in the House of Lords is even going to be more difficult. There's only, I think, 145 peers in favour of leaving. So... Uh, we may even see at the end of this process the abolition of the House of Lords for good, which is something that, you know, people have talked about. But um, this may be the issue that brings it to fruition. <laughs> Crumbs. Right. Don't you think that in 15 years time we'll have a multi-speed Europe? We might have the Benelux countries and maybe Germany and maybe some Scandinavian countries with a closer political union we will have, uh, which will still be trading with us. We will have, let's say, the Mediterranean countries, which will have a looser uh, political union and maybe just just have economic ties with the former communist countries in Eastern Europe, um, another stage of development that really will have a multi-speed Europe. I think, you know, it's difficult to um, kind of crystal ball gaze, but what I can see is uh, probably the opposite of what you you presented there. The, the European Union project is much more unstable than people recognise. And, you know, the weak links are Greece, Italy. Italy tomorrow, if there was a referendum, would vote to leave. But the, the, the destruction of their currency would be, it would be a disaster. Right? So it's not going to happen. Uh, Greece um, has to make two and a half percent cuts in public expenditure until 2060, right? Just to maintain their economy at its present level. It, it's a, it's a, a car crash waiting to happen. So um, what happens is not just going to be affected by what happens in uh, the UK. And sometimes, you know, we are a bit like little Englanders in not actually appreciating how instability actually impacts on other countries as well. And we need to also understand and look at what's happening outside of um, UK borders. I think you said the perfect thing right at the end, that we are little Englanders, and I think the people who voted to leave completely are that, because the Scots didn't, didn't vote to leave, the Northern Irish didn't, OK, the Welsh did. But I've always thought that it was somewhat... Uh, uh, somewhat of an oxymoron that the UK Independence Party is not a UK Independence Party. It's an English uh, Independence Party. And they've always should have called themselves thus. Kole Olalade, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and proving to me 
that you can be intelligent, urbane, rational, but still vote the wrong way in a referendum result. 52% of the electorate say otherwise. <laughs> you know, we didn't even talk about the £250 million a week that we're going to, going to be put towards the NHS. You know, dare I say, a lot of those elderly voters... It's going up all the yeah, time. Exactly. A lot of those, a lot of those elderly voters, uh, that's the thing that swung it for them, my mother being one. But anyway... Um, why don't you tell us again exactly it didn't what you me. do? I didn't believe it. Well, I, and you didn't because you're, you know, you're a rational person and you were looking at other issues around the debate. But that 350 million quid a week for the NHS must have swayed at least five percent of the population. It must have. It was a very powerful, very powerful, easily digestible slogan. It was a slogan of evil genius. Go. Be honest. I'll be honest with you. I spoke to leavers and remainers at the time and nobody believed it. I did debates in Bristol, in um, Slough, in Leeds, and everybody said that this was uh, basically a politicking. um, I had no basis. My, My mother believed it. She said, great. Instead of giving all those money to the Bulgarians and whatever, we can, my mother literally said that. So, yeah, but, uh, but you, as an intelligent person, know that NHS expenditure is not ring fenced. So there's no guarantee that money, even if it appears, is going to go into the NHS. Listen, I, that wasn't going to sway me either way, you know. But I'm just saying that in terms of if you were to ask the average Brit today, give me one slogan from that referendum. I'm telling you, six out of ten would go 350 million quid on the side of that bus to the NHS. Whether they believed it or not, it's what stuck in their minds. And, I'm, and, I, and anecdotally, if my mother, who is actually attuned to politics, not to the extent that I am, admittedly, but, you know, she do, she could tell you who the Home Secretary is and she, she does know the Secretary of State for Health. She can tell you those things. She She thought that money was going to the NHS. Now, sir, for the third time, we're trying to wrap this show up, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> you work for Voice of Change. Why don't you tell us about a little bit of work that your organisation does, sir? Okay, just very quickly. Voice for Change is um, a membership organisation made up of over 400 uh, black and minority ethnic uh, organisations spread across England. So we cover everything from education to social enterprise uh, sports, but one of our central uh, functions is to act as um, a mouthpiece between the voluntary sector and central government and other policy makers. So we also sit on a number of uh, government bodies. So at the moment, um, I'm with um, uh, the Minister for Constitution, Chris Skidmore's uh, Democracy Council, uh, who are overseeing the um, commemoration of the Representation of the People's Act which, of course, gave women the right to vote, which no doubt you've been following and we'll hear a lot more about uh, come February and uh, June. Fantastic. And so why don't you give us the web address and all the social uh, links for Voice for Change? It's www.voice4, as in the number, uh, change-england.co.uk and uh, we're on uh, Facebook um, you can also reach us on uh, Twitter. And uh, for you younger people out there, we're also on Snapchat. <laughs> Brilliant. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. You can follow the progress of the show where we are 
at Mid Atlantic Show. We're also at Mid Atlantic Show, also on Facebook. Of course, we have a website uh, where you can find us uh, and you can see all the archives of the show. And we've had um, a lot of great kind of thinkers and speakers. Again, Kunle, thank you for coming on to Mid Atlantic this week. Thank you for having me on. That's all right. We don't forget, folks. We are the bastion of the Opinco left of centre. Do good to people because it's the right thing to do. Political thought for both sides of the channel. Uh, this week um, we've put out a lot of shows. Uh, we've got Tim Marshall doing our world roundup of world news and, and, and views. We've got Brexit. Uh, with Kunle and then next week we'll be back with the regular pundits looking at US and UK news see you all again soon fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com when your skin feels nourished and glows you radiate confidence osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean clinically proven mega moisture duo This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.